I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Linda Carducci, and we're talking about the life and music of Clara Schumann. She was a prodigy, a composer, and one of the 19th century's greatest pianists. We get into various aspects of her music, her upbringing, and the challenges she faced. Plus, stay with us for a heroic story of Clara you likely haven't heard before. Composing gives me great pleasure. There is nothing that surpasses the joy of creation, if only because through it one wins hours of self-forgetfulness when one lives in a world of sound. That's from the diary of Clara Schumann, Linda, and I think one takeaway from this episode will be that Clara Schumann was wholly dedicated to her craft, the music, and the piano. Yes, composing and piano. And as you read that quote of Clara Schumann, I was reminded of a later composer who had a similar sentiment, and that is Sergei Rachmaninoff. He Ah. was quite a respected pianist, as was Clara, but he wanted to compose. It was that art of creation Mm. that so excited him and, and drove him to compose. I think we might say the same about Clara. I think so. So she was born into a musical family in Leipzig in 1819, started the piano at a very young age. I think she was around four years old, early studies with her mother, but then they would get divorced soon after, right? And that is when she studied with her father, Friedrich Wieck, not a name that's so known today to at least the non-musical population, but he was one of the great piano teachers of the 19th century. He was well uh, respected and uh, well sought after. He, in essence, drove her career. He saw talent in her, and so he tried to, uh, and did, train her to play piano by ear. He also sent her places to learn composition and theory. He was solely dedicated to making sure that she had an entire environment about music and was very well educated in music. And he had complete control over that, this this education. She had a daily one-hour lesson plus two hours of required practice. Now, when a one-hour lesson every day is a lot. When you're in conservatory, you do one, maybe two lessons a week usually on your instrument, and then you're usually practicing four to six hours. But still, two hours when you're seven years old? I mean, come on, forget it. I was never going to uh, to do that. But in addition to piano, as you said, she's getting lessons on other things in music. And he tried to give her a little bit more education in terms of um, religion and language, I think, but it was very unbalanced. It was all it was all about music. And she started to give public concerts pretty early, like when she was nine years old. Can you imagine the, the confidence of a, of a little eight or nine-year-old girl who would, could walk out onto a stage in public and perform music and important and sophisticated and, and difficult music, say, for example, of Frederick Chopin. This instilled a great confidence in Clara that, that she showed throughout her lifetime. I think a lot of similarities to Mozart, in a way, this prodigy at the keyboard, and is being shown off at a very early age. Maybe not all these grand tours to royalty. Uh, it's a different time at the, at this point, but it's uh, I think along those lines of um, of prodigy. And when she's 18 years old, she's giving concerts, um, very successful concerts in Vienna, which is I mean, it's a cultural hub today. In the 19th century, for music, it was everything. In fact, uh, when she was young and gave a concert, uh, one of the people who attended the concert was a young Robert Schumann, although he was older than her, but he was so impressed with her pianism and her, her skill. And after hearing her play, he left his teacher and started studying with her father, even um, renting a room. And he was um, older, nine years um, older, but he saw this 
prodigy going at it, and, and that motivated him to start studying with Friedrich Wieck. He was sought after. And we have to backtrack a little bit, and I think we're going to do that a lot with Clara's life here, because big successful concerts when she's 18, but we have to rewind back to when she's 11 years old, and we have her first composition or her first opus, the first thing she would kind of you know present to the public or would be performed or published, that kind of thing. Let's enjoy a little bit of this polonaise, a set of four of her Opus One. You can't listen to that and not smile. And I imagine she was working on this. I can imagine her after dinner, they're in the drawing room, she's playing, she's working this out. It's very basic, right? We have to acknowledge that. The left hand is very simple, Mm -hmm. nice rhythm, Mm -hmm. giving the momentum. The right hand has this nice melody Mm -hmm. altogether. It's just very nice, but quite incredible for an 11-year-old. Because there's there's elements of, um, I don't want to say something fantastical about it, um, but there is, there's something extra to it. Yeah, the interesting harmony, I thought, at the very beginning yes, of the first the few bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that, that's what struck me. Yes. Interesting, too, that she would go to polonaises. Polonaises are traditional Polish dances, mm-hmm. and we associate those with Frederick Chopin, who was a Pole and who wrote several polonaises for piano. Clara Schumann knew, was familiar with the work of Frederick Chopin and respected him. And that was part of her education as well, um, meeting with great musicians and studying all of these musicians. It wasn't she, she wasn't working in a vacuum or just studying Johann Sebastian Bach or Domenico Scarlatti, which she would, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, but this gets even kind of crazier because just a few years later, she's 13 and she starts her piano concerto. Right? She starts to compose this, and she spends a couple of years on it. Robert Schumann helped her initially with the orchestration you know, helping her with things. But then she finishes the concerto. She removes his revisions, takes away his help and everything, and then premieres it with the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra with Felix Mendelssohn conducting. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. A confident young child, really. Uh, what I think is interesting, too, about the piano concerto is uh, it shows her, this is in the age, uh, age of um, 13, as you say, really getting into the romantic style, which was a style from the 1800s that it emphasized uh, freedom of spirit, expression, passion, all kinds of emotion, uh, a breakdown of the structure that we saw in music of classicism that, that preceded it in the, in the 18th century. And when you listen to the second movement of the piano concerto, it's so beautiful. And you see this hallmark of Clara Schumann's music where she is able to create, well, basically the piano is an extension of her voice, and she's able to do use that to create or depict all kinds of emotions. Her second movements are so lyrical, so singing. It is, you are floating, and they the lines seem to just float and go on and on and on. And we'll be talking about Robert uh, Robert's music as well, because when they get married shortly after this, it's hard to talk about one without the other, of course. because you hear directly the influence of Clara's music into Robert's and the other way around as well. And that second movement just reminds me of all of the great lyrical stuff she would write after this and the lyrical stuff that I love about Robert Schumann as well. Yes, this piano concerto was written before Robert Schumann wrote his only piano concerto. Mm -hmm. Clara Schumann wrote hers in the key of A minor. 
And then years later, when Robert wrote his, it was in the key of A minor. Mm -hmm. I think this points to this symbiotic relationship that they had uh, with each other as almost a unified whole of musicians. He depended on her to perform his music, but he knew that she had a special appreciation for his music and understood his music, and vice versa. She was able to perform his music, and he was able to guide her uh, with her music and appreciate what she was creating. And did her piano concerto in A minor have an influence on maybe Edvard Grieg and his A minor concerto? Yes, I think so. Again, A minor. Mm -hmm. Yes. He wrote his uh, after Robert Schumann's. So her and Robert meet when they're quite young. She's quite young when she's nine, you know, way back then. She was around 16. He was 25. That's when he had broken off a previous engagement. And then I think things started to happen between them. And then on her 18th birthday, or right after that, I think, he had then proposed. But this did not go over well with um, her father, Friedrich, did it? No, he he didn't think well of uh, Robert Schumann. As you said, Robert rented a a room in their home, and he saw Robert's lifestyle. He thought it was rather wild. He was out Mm -hmm. late at night. He was smoking. He was enjoying some drinks here and there. And uh, this is not the influence that Frederick Wieck was looking for for his daughter, his star that he was raising to be this wonderful child prodigy and have this international career. So, of course, he was horrified when the two of them uh, got together. Oh, yeah. It seems like he felt probably a level of, of ownership or, or entitlement to her success and the money as well. He was controlling the, the finances and the money she was getting in from these tours and performances early on. And he felt threatened by Robert, as you said, taking this away, one, by just taking her away and making her stay at home and raise children and stopping her career, but also in the sense of his lifestyle as well. Because in the 19th century, it was definitely a thing for women to learn piano, but they were expected to learn it for, to be graceful, to entertain, you know, whatever in, in, in the household. But it, it does seem from everything that Wieck wasn't thinking about that with Clara Schumann. This wasn't about having a rounded, you know, being a well-rounded, quote-unquote, lady, as they would say, but rather she was a star. She, he thought that she could be playing at the same level or more than any of the male counterparts. Yes, I never had the impression that Frederick Wieck anticipated for her just to become a housewife. I think that he really did believe that she had the stuff to have a full career. And his reaction from this proposal, I mean, it was this was extreme. They were uh, long court battles. She was prohibited to, um, to see Robert. Um, it was drawn out. Robert was threatened. She was also he spread rumors about her playing to um, other cities where she was supposed to be performing, denigrating his music whenever possible, also publicly. Um, it was really, really bad. And yet Robert and Clara were now forming this bond. So and it wasn't just, you know, physical romance that mm-hmm. they had. Um, they would sit at the piano and play piano together. Oh, yeah. They were bonded by, by music. They would share musical ideas for hours together. Mm-hmm. They would study scores for hours together. That love of music and the music that drove them is, is a really strong bond that, that carried them through their entire life. And helped them survive, I assume, all of this, uh, what's happening in their engagement. And then before, just before her 21st birthday, that is when they were able to get married. The courts sided with Robert and Clara and they got married. I think it didn't matter when she was 21 anyway, but a day before, they're going to take it, right? They're going <laughs> to, it's not soon enough to, to get married for them. 
We now see a break, though. Now she has broken from her father. I think mm-hmm. that she did somewhat repair her relationship with him later on in yeah. the years subsequent. But right now, this was a break from her father. Oh, completely. And we see now this this strength of spirit of Clara. So when she was young, she was going out on these public stages to perform before large crowds. That requires some sort of confidence. Mm-hmm. And it re- also required her to have a strength of spirit and confidence to break from her father and seek out Robert Schumann and pursue a marriage with him. And they were, I mean, they were hopelessly in love. In her diary on uh, in December of 1840, she wrote, after a, a few months of marriage, she wrote, We have been married for a quarter of a year today, and it is the happiest quarter of a year in my life. That's very sweet, isn't it's lovely. it? Lovely. Mm-hmm. So we don't have other large-scale works from Clara Schumann besides her... Um, piano concerto, no symphonic works. I think there's a lot of things about that in terms of women at this time, what was considered, one, just allowed or or appropriate. So her music is focused, that she writes is focused on solo piano, very small um, chamber works. And Robert did value her musically. He did value her piano playing. He did value her, her composition skills. But he valued her being at home, taking care of the children, um, raising children, um, finances, being this this um, this homemaker, and taking care of Robert Schumann too, because it wasn't too long after this his health started to um, to suffer. And I want to read for you, Linda, this quote from the year before, which is it's it's just kind of tragic to read. She's twenty in 1839. This is just before they got married, and she said, "I once believed that I possessed creative talent, but I have given up this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. There has never yet been one able to do it. Should I expect to be the one?" It's hard to read and hear, and it sounds like someone told her this. It wasn't just she felt this idea, but when she says a woman must not desire to compose, it sounds like that was something someone told her. You don't want to say that's something her father would say to her, but if if there's a choice for him, I imagine, let her compose or have her already, this prodigy, be wildly successful at the piano. Maybe there was it felt there was a competition with that. Because even in school today, if you start focusing on something other than your instrument or your principal study, you know, people say you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. I agree with you. I think that uh, that was a theory that was probably imposed on her um, by her society, um, mm-hmm. that, that maybe she shouldn't be composing, i.e. working. She's supposed to take care of the household. So there, we'll see this tension in her. She did believe that, and she did have children that she loved and she wanted to raise, but then there was a tension between that and her also wanting to perform and compose. Here's another quote from her diary and kind of explains the situation for her going forward. She says, My piano playing is falling behind. This always happens when Robert is composing. There is not even one little hour to be found in the whole day for myself, if only I don't fall too far behind. Score reading has also been given up once again, but I hope that it won't be for too long this time. She's not able to play the piano when Robert's composing. Yeah, he he, he took precedence. Of course, on his end, he realized that uh, that she had this difficulty in, in blending the two things mm-hmm. in her life. And he said, and to have a, ch- a husband, he was referring to himself, who is always living in the realm of the imagination. Yeah. Robert Schumann's words referring to himself. Mm-hmm. So she did have to put up with sometimes, you know, the, the, this imaginary world that he did live in a bit. Shortly after this, she composes her sonata in G minor. 
and this is early in their marriage. Things are blissful, and she wrote the first two movements as a Christmas present for Robert. From her diary, she said, I tried to compose something for Robert, and amazingly, it worked. I was delighted to be able to complete a first and second sonata movement, and I don't suppose it failed in its purpose, namely to prepare a little surprise for my dear husband. Let's listen to a little bit of the first movement of the sonata in G minor. It's been a minute since we heard her first piece, that um, that polonaise from her opus one. Such a difference. Now, it's not a clear left hand and a clear right hand all the time. It is more ambiguous. It is more free with the, um, the tempo or the rhythms. And a big part, there's silence. There's space. Part of music is knowing what to say and what not to say. So she has these little statements, and then it breathes. But with a little polonaise, you know, you're just... You keep it moving forward. But here, she's on a whole nother level. Such a maturity in that work, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you say in the beginning, it's not just a focus on melody. Just, she doesn't set out to say, okay, I'm going to have a melody in the right hand, mm-hmm. and I'm going to have an accompaniment in the left hand. Yeah. No, we heard these little flights of fancy, these little fragments that weren't even connected to the melody there. Mm-hmm. They were almost like these little introductory sort of thoughts that she was throwing out there with the silence that you mentioned, punctuated by silence. And every time I hear that G minor sonata of hers, I'm reminded of Frederick Chopin's mm-hmm. great piano sonata number three in B minor, which also has these little little fragments that just appear in silence sometimes. That's a great work, by the way. I'm not saying that she um, based that on Chopin's Piano Concerto Number no. 3, but she was influenced by his work. She respected him very much. So I'm not surprised that there are some reminiscences between the two. Oh, yes. And a lot of the hallmarks of this romantic period are found in her music, like you um, just said. And the second movement, also just so beautiful and just a hallmark of Clara's music. So they were in love. They were almost impossible to separate during this time period that a lot of big musical successes, it is hard to mention one without the other. And a little bit more from that quote you had read earlier about Schumann saying, you know, feeling bad for her. She has doing all these things with a husband living in the realm of imagination. He says, you know, this does not go together with composing. She cannot work at it regularly. And I'm often disturbed to think how many profound ideas are lost because she cannot work them out. And that's one of the heart-wrenching things about, about music is what don't we have? What have we lost by people who have been not able or allowed to, to write or perform or do things? So we don't have a piano concerto number two from necessarily really. We don't have a symphony from uh, Clara Schumann. There's a lot of things that are lost, and Robert recognized that at the time as well. Yeah, I think that statement shows that he respects her musicianship and her ability to compose. There are so many things about Clara's life that are just um, so fascinating, and coming up next is something you've probably never heard that she did, and it is quite incredible. That's coming up right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at wetaclassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. 
This is pretty incredible. So in 1849, there was an uprising against the government in Dresden where Clara and the family were living. And I want to read an excerpt from this publication from 1998 of David Dennis from Loyola University, Chicago. Here's what happened. Here's what Clara did. In 1849, when fighting actually broke out in Dresden, the Schumanns hid in the house, alarmed by the sound of shooting and of bells ringing in all the towers. When volunteers came to their neighborhood looking for men who could serve in the militia, Schumann ran into the house to hide. Clara, convinced that they wanted to take him, made some excuses. After the coast was clear, the two of them, with their oldest daughter, Marie, ran to the train station and escaped, and Clara had quickly made arrangements for the housekeeper to stay with the other children. Their flight took them by train to outlying villages. Two days later, at 3 a.m., Clara, who was nearly seven months pregnant, returned to Dresden, accompanied by two other women. They walked across the fields under continuous cannonading, fire from cannons, encountering scythe-armed rebels along the way. She made it to their house, where, as she wrote, I found the children still asleep, tore them out of their beds immediately, had them dressed, packed a few important items, and in one hour we were together again outside in the fields. Clara added that my poor Robert had also spent some anxiety-filled hours, but was happy to see them. In fact, Schumann had gone right ahead with his creative work and maintained his concealment for the rest of the month. That is unreal. Clara, seven months pregnant, is running back into Dresden uh, amidst this um, fighting and cannons and rebels, grabs the kids and runs back. And she was a rather little petite woman, too. Yes. I am so impressed by her courage when I read that story. I'm impressed but not surprised, John. Yeah. Because I think she has shown courage throughout her lifetime, as I mentioned earlier, you know, going out on public stages at the age of eight and nine defying her father, who had this iron grip on her for many years, defying her in in her marriage to um, Robert Schumann, and then um, keeping up composition for a while while she was married and raising children. And then and in this particular episode, I really do think that this is indicative of the strength of character that she had. Absolutely. There's... There's so many things we're surely missing from her life that have just gone untold or gone lost, diaries, works, or, or stories or otherwise. And this is just an incredible—there's uh, no words to describe you know, what she must have, um, have gone through. Mm-hmm. Now, a few years earlier, she was also in difficult times. In 1846, she wrote her piano trio, but it was under not the greatest circumstances. That's right. Uh, she was 27 years old when she wrote this. Uh, she was living in Dresden um, with her family in, 19, in 1846. This is a, a very mature work that shows maybe what was going on in her lifetime at the time. It was a period of hardship for Clara because Robert's health was starting to decline. So she was concerned about that. She also suffered a miscarriage at that time. And so we can hear a maturity within this uh, piano trio now, maybe an understanding of the the nuances that occur in all of our lifetimes and the experiences we all have, and yet strength that sort of perseveres and comes through a difficult period. I think we see and hear this in this piano trio. To me, it's a very strong work. It's a mature work. Oh, yes. She doesn't focus a lot on the piano in this piece either. Robert Schumann will sometimes focus on the piano in his chamber music. Mm-hmm. I felt that she was giving all equal voice to uh, all three of the instruments. Yes, I mean, they usually, I haven't played the piano, so I'm going to give myself some, I'm going to carry the weight of this, but she gives equal weight to all, all of the musicians. And when you say it's a mature work, usually for composers, 
gaining this maturity is by composing relentlessly, having your music performed all the time, and learning. She doesn't have that. She's not writing all... She's writing music, but it's not a ton of music. So she's making big advances and influencing music with just very little. She's doing so much with little in terms of time, opportunity, and resources. Yes. Now, she did study composition and theory when she was a, a girl. Mm-hmm. But as you say, she didn't keep it up on a steady basis. No. And so uh, people who have written about the piano trio will remark on the craftsmanship, the, the expert craftsmanship of this. I think this all speaks to her underlying talent. And she had the attention of people like famous violinist Yosef Joachim, or rather, who's the other way around when they uh, met this young virtuoso. The same for Johannes Brahms. He's 20 years old. I think he just kind of shows up on Clara and Robert's doorstep, and they are taken by him, his music, his his personality, everything. And she formed close bonds with um, these people and, and, and several others that would take her through her entire life. Clara was living in a world where men had the the dominant uh, figure, were the dominant figure in households and in professions, and yet she held her own, and she interacted with many men. If you look at, uh, of course, her father when she was growing up, and he had a very strong influence on her, and then Robert, and she would play music with him and study music and and teach music uh, with him, and they would study together. She and and he formed a very important partnership. They were also friends with uh, Felix Mendelssohn, who admired the, the Schumanns, and they admired him very much. They were friends with Franz Liszt, Josef Joachim, the violinist, and then, of course, Johannes Brahms. Yes. And Johannes Brahms was someone who the Schumanns did not know, but one day showed up on the Schumanns' doorstep with a letter of introduction from their mutual friend, the violinist Josef Joachim, a great violinist of the day, who was closer in age to Brahms than he was to the Schumanns. And so Robert Schumann welcomed Brahms in, did not know him, Except for this letter of introduction, Brahms sat down at the piano and started playing some of his own works for Robert Schumann just, mm. to, just to show what he could do. A few minutes into that performance, Robert Schumann was so impressed that he asked Johannes Brahms, stop, stop yeah. for a minute until I go get my wife. I want my wife to hear you. Mm-hmm. And he went and, go, and got Clara. And I just thought that was, that, that was really an enduring, endearing moment for mm-hmm. Robert, showing that he had respect for Clara's uh, view of music. And her and Brahms would stay very close. And Brahms was actually important right after this meeting. Robert starts to get sick. He attempts to take his own life in 1854, and he's placed in an institution, and he's there for two years before he dies. And Clara was unable to see him for these two years until the very, very end. He was um, dealing with mental illness, and I think it was the sight of her. When she came in, something happened, and he he would become agitated to the point of no return, it seemed. So she wasn't able to see him. Brahms was able to go in and meet with Robert time to time. I think he showed him compositions and things like that with him to the end when then um, Clara would be able to see him before Robert would die in 1856. And absolutely heartbreaking for Clara, I'm sure, for these two years of being unable to see him, unable to uh, maybe feeling helpless, and then losing him at the end in 1856. But then Brahms was also there for Clara. They were very, very close. And I've not seen anything in the terms of that it ever became something physical or or deeply romantic. It sounds like I think they went on a trip together early after Mm -hmm. this, and then it was kind of like, okay, let's not do that again. Let's just, um, let's keep things as they are, you know, friendship. 
There's always been speculation yes. as to whether there was a really mm-hmm. love affair between Brahms and Clara. I think there was mutual admiration for each other. They were very fond of each other. Mm-hmm. And they would write letters to each other. This was uh, while, even, while even Robert was ill. They would, we, we would stay very close and write letters to each other. After his death, as you said, she was a great comfort to him. They would spend long afternoons walking. Uh, they would play music for each other. But we don't have any specific uh, or concrete evidence, at least that I have been able to research, that shows right. that they had any anything further mm-hmm. than that. And eventually, Brahms decided he needed to break away from that. Yeah. He just felt maybe that this was not a healthy position for him to be in anymore, and he left. Yes. He seemed definitely in another lifetime kind of situation. Yeah. And he just had to, um, to step back. But around this time as well, before Robert died, because after he died, she did not write any new music, but... Shortly before this, she wrote a set of romances, right? The Opus 22? Yes, three romances for violin and piano. And they were dedicated to Joseph Joachim, the Opus 22 collection, because he was a violinist. Uh, They frequently performed together and were friends together. So she wrote this this set of three pieces, uh, sometimes performed all as a set. Mm For, for Joseph Joachim, they were well-received. They cover many moods. There's melancholy in, in these romances, but there's also exuberance. My, my favorite of the three is number one, which the, the violin has a main voice. Again, Clara, as a pianist, did not insist that the piano have the, have the primary voice here. It's violin, and it's very slow and wistful and pensive. And in it, she even hints at a a segment that is in Robert Schumann's first violin sonata. So those are the three romances for violin and piano, Opus 22. But she also wrote some romances, Opus 21, Mm -hmm. for Johannes Brahms. It's a birthday gift for him. Imagine getting a a birthday present, and it's from Clara Schumann, and it's a piece of music. Mm. I can't imagine that. Mm. So after Robert's death in 1856... Her composing stops, but now her performing career takes back off. And she really is one of the greatest. She's considered one of the greatest pianists of the 19th century, and she was considered to be that at this time as well. She went on countless innumerable tours, performing all over the place, to just critical acclaim basically everywhere. She did 238 concerts alone, just alone, with violinist Josef Joachim. So... I mean, the num- the concerts are in the hundreds, probably thousands, of, of what she does for the next four decades of her life. She, It's tragic, but she has this new life after this where she is touring and she's doing what she probably felt she was meant to be doing all along. Again, I think this shows her strength of character. She's widowed now at the mm-hmm. age of 37 which, you know, in our lifetime would be very um, young, although she lived to be in her later 70s, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, her touring did provide some financial security for their household, even while Robert was was alive. Sometimes he would depend on her That's her, right. uh, her income from, mm-hmm. from touring. But but after his death, she did go on, on, on a number of tours, uh, very respected, and her repertoire would include... Um, Chopin, she she very much liked Chopin, but she played Beethoven too. She was playing some of the later Beethoven sonatas, oh, yeah. which are not easy pieces to play. No, but she liked Bach and she liked Domenico Scarlatti, and she would include those also in her her repertoire. And she championed Robert's music as well. Yes, for the rest of her life. In fact, uh, after his death, she oversaw a publication of his music. She wanted to make sure it was edited properly and faithfully to what he wrote. Mm. And I wonder sometimes why. She didn't write any new music. She did do some 
She did some transcriptions of Robert's music, some arrangements, but no original music of her own. You wonder, was it what was it in her that maybe it was just too hard after Robert? I don't, I don't know. Yes, yeah, maybe the inspiration was gone. Maybe that symbiotic relationship that they had where they kind of motivated each other, maybe that was gone. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to tell. But she is this legendary soloist. And let's take a look at one of those transcriptions she made of a song of Robert Schumann, a great leader composer. And she does this transcription for piano. Now, the song, songs, you know, voice and piano. Now it's just piano that has its own challenges in trying to make it sound, well, listenable or make it even make it even come across because songs can be very, very simple in terms of like repeating a single note over and over again, but the words are changing, right? You're singing words, but in music, if it's the same note, it's that same note repeating. So it takes a little bit of finesse to, and skill to make it, I think, come across. So here, we're going to listen to for a second, a brief example of this song, Montnacht, and then we'll take a listen to how Clara arranged it for piano. So part of that is dependent on the performer here, Isada Kane Mason, with um, fantastic rhythm and time. But it's dependent on Clara to write this in to begin with. So you hear that note that's being repeated. There's accents on that note. It's on a and the dynamics a little bit different. So there is still this separation from the rest of the piano. And then in that response with that cascading kind of descending line, one Isada is doing great timing with um, some rubato there, but just trying to combine that and make that work as a response and not just the same line as the voice is is quite complicated. Hopefully I'm explaining that as well, but um, it's just something innate about her that is able to bring music to life and to take music like a song and make it just for piano. That's hard. It is, but she, you know, she knew the piano so well. She was so well-versed at the piano, so mm-hmm. she knew what certain registers of the piano could do, and she knew how she would maybe bring in some little flourishes from different parts of the piano. I think that was all going on in her brain. Oh, yes. And she was very influential. In fact, she became a uh, part of the piano faculty at a conservatory in Frankfurt from 1878 to 1892, and it was basically whatever she demanded— was what she was going to have. I mean, she said she will not teach any beginning or less advanced students. She only taught the most advanced. She only taught for, I think it was like an hour and a half or two hours a day, and it had to be at her home. And people were coming and seeking her out, much like how her father was sought after as a piano teacher. So, And as you said earlier on, she gave credit to her father. They made up slightly. It was never repaired fully. But she credits her father with her successes and all the education that he gave her um, growing up. And now she is teaching the next generation of um, pianists. 
think there's a wonderful cycle there. And she um, she was in a, in a world where where men were dominant, mm-hmm. especially in her profession. But yet we see over and over and over again through Clara's life that she had this strength of spirit to pursue things that she wanted to pursue, whether it was her marriage or composing, even though she wasn't she was told she wasn't supposed to compose, mm-hmm. but she did it anyway. She had very definitive opinions. As you say, when she was teaching at the end, toward her end of the life, she would only take a certain quality of student. Mm-hmm. She had very definitive opinions about the the evolution of music that was going on at the time with Wagner and Berlioz and uh, Liszt. Mm-hmm. She she did not like the direction of that. So she was a, she was a woman who knew her mind. Oh yes, and her last public concert in 1891, and it was a piece by Brahms, his variations on a theme by Haydn, an arrangement for two pianos. And she lived five more years until 1896, but I don't want to say that's a conscious decision or read too much into it, but there's something for making her last public appearance, Music of Brahms. It's very touching. Touching. I was about to say that. That's, it's just touching. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she was known in her time as one of the greatest piano soloists. She studied with one of the most sought-after teachers. She became a sought-after teacher. She was one of the first soloists to be playing from memory. That is now just normal, but it was not. Things had to start somewhere, and she was one of the first to start playing from memory. And unfortunately, her music, her compositions, were not well-known or performed much after this, for basically till the 1970s, her music was almost completely forgotten, I think. Yeah, and with this resurgence of, of her music now and um, critical evaluation of her music and important performance of her music, we're starting to see how well-crafted these things were, what a true musician she was. She was a great pianist, there's no doubt about it, and she impressed people like Chopin and Brahms, but yet she was able to, um, to craft music in a very sophisticated way. And, and actually very touching. So those romances that we were talking about for violin and piano, I think some of them are just exceedingly touching. Well, that is a bit on the life and some of the music that Clara Schumann wrote. And now it's time to get to your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Skinny Jewel left a review on Apple Podcasts and said, after giving us five stars, I love this podcast. I am an amateur musician and have listened to classical music since I was a child. I love this podcast. The topics are interesting and the guests are superb. I always come away with a new idea or perspective, but I love that I can recommend the podcast because they don't get too technical. Shout out to Linda Carducci. I wish she were on every week. Bravo, (laughs) Classical Breakdown. Well, Linda... Thank you very much. Hey, I'll be on every week. I love nothing more than to talk about this gorgeous body of music that we have. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Skinny Jewel. And thank you so much, Linda, for joining me here for Clara Schumann. And if you have any questions or ideas for episodes, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And you can learn more about this episode on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical.